You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. We'll not get tired of saying this. Gold for Ireland at the Olympics in Tokyo. Paula Donovan and Fintan McCarthy from Skibbereen in the lightweight double skulls in rowing. They're live in Morning Ireland with our man Des Cahill in Tokyo. They certainly are. They have their medals in their pockets, which is very unglamorous in the in the studio here. Well, gentlemen, it falls on me on behalf of people are getting up at home in Ireland to say on behalf of everybody, the rowing community, the general sports fans, the non-sports fans, shops and factories, everywhere is going to be a happy place today because of what you've done. So thank you for what you've done and congratulations. Now, I know you didn't do it for all of us in Ireland. You did it for yourselves. But can I ask you, first of all, maybe Fintan, would you take us through the race? Like Germany and Italy went off. Tell us your tactics relative to that. Um, yeah, yeah, the, we kind of always expect them to have a quick start, you know, we've been racing them all year and that's generally how the, the races have gone, the, the Germans, the Italians get out fairly quickly and then we try and reel them in, so it was kind of, you know, the usual, really, um, and then I think we got past the Italians first, so I was just thinking, okay, this is, this is good, this is what's supposed to be happening. talk to each other much during a race? Not too much now. We might say the, the odd word. Fintan um, <laughs> says uh, he just says go or something. Yeah, like yeah. Every I can't talk at all. Yeah, I wouldn't be, I'm not best great at talking at the best of times. But <laughs> Fintan, he he takes all the control then during the race. And you were happy with where you were at that stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of just what happened previously, so I wasn't too too worried. And um, yeah. The second half, the we we were coming back to the Germans, but they were they were sticking ahead of us. I think we might have got slightly ahead of them yeah. around the fifteen hundred meter mark, and then it was all it was all go from there. Really, just full on, yeah. But I I was I was amazed because Paul, you said afterwards when you were asked about your success, you said it's down, you work hard, but surely every crew works hard. Now I know you're not here to say well we're fantastic as well, and it's not your style, but there has to be something more than just hard work to be Olympic champions. Um, I suppose well uh, like depends on how far deep you want to go into things like there's yeah, boats and coaches and that support staff and all this type of thing and, uh, and so what you have the best boat and the best coaching staff is I mean, we have a good boat anyway and, and the <laughs> best the best coach world, world coach of the year there 2018 yeah. Dominic Casey yeah. so uh, we can't complain with that either yeah. uh, there's a lot goes into like a lot of uh, sports science physiology biomechanical testing and then George's the, the mother at home and the father and the grandmother and all the support they've been giving us and all throughout the years and like you need so much luck as well in, in that like just say that we were actually born in the place that we were born and there was a rowing club nearby and and that say myself and Gary got got a bit of luck then going to Rio and that we were brothers and, and so we both liked the same sport and did that and then lucky that, that Fintan was there and watching and, and in the rowing club and then that he trained really hard and made it into the boat and, and just just a whole lot of different events then like that, that and you can't kind of <laughs> summarise it all like and but all of those things together. Yeah yeah, 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 all together. But fundamentally, like, it's just, I suppose we did an awful lot of training, like, really, that's kind of the, of course. the main ingredient. But but you mentioned the boat. So, Fintan, you rode with your brother, Jake, and you rode with Gary, and you and Gary got silver at the Olympics. And, and then another guy comes into the boat. Basically, you all had to compete for two seats. Isn't that effectively what happened? Yeah, 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 it was. So, you know, I think we all know, it was myself and Gary there in, in Rio and, and again for, for a couple of years afterwards and stuff. But then, um, as Fintan and his brother were, were, were getting older and, and there was other people kind of challenging and stuff as well that, um, in the trials then, like when we were mixing it up, that it was 2019, then myself and, and Fintan came out on, on the top. Uh, and then we were trialing again this year and, uh, George was very, very close, like, and, um, well, unfortunately, Fintan's brother, Jake, he had a bit of a back injury there last year, so that hampered his, his preparations an awful amount, so he uh, um, he didn't make it then. But uh, I think then, like, it's good then for the boat that, that I suppose, like, that everyone is open to to opening up the selection and not just, say, having me and Gary against Fintan sure, and Jake yeah. because we're rubber brothers, so we kind of mix it out and try, try and get the best combination, which... Uh, do and you, know, you and you brought the best out of yourselves, which which was fantastic and and yeah. tough on the lads, but the, but the joy of you winning is great. Can I ask you, Fintan, about 
uh, your future. You have a degree in physiology. Paul is studying medicine. So what's your future? Um, I suppose we'll, we'll stick at the rowing for another few years anyway. Um, You're in no rush to go work. Yeah, yeah no, there's no. no rush. Um, the next Olympics is actually the last. It's going to be the last one for our event. Yeah. So we'll have to try and go out with a bang. So you'll go again. Yeah. And Paul, you're you're so relaxed and you're famously so relaxed and you're studying to be a doctor. I'd be terrified going to you as, as a doctor. I'd be afraid you just say, Ashley, you're grand. And I'd, <laughs> I'd, need, I'd need a second opinion. How, where, where are you at with the medical studies? Um, yeah, so I suppose I'm just, uh, I'm going to third year now of, uh, of the graduate entry programme there in UCC. And they've been very accommodating as well. In fairness, they've been good to me and gave me some time off there. So I did, did a little bit... Um, up until kind of December last year, and then then they left me off. But I'll, I'll have to pick it up again now once I get home. There'll be no let up, but that's all right too. Do you find that difficult? Intense study and intense training. Um, I'd like yeah. There's a lot a lot of study to do, and then you're trying to do a lot of training as well. So, but I I like both things, you know. And so when you're interested, and then you, you take a lot of enjoyment from that, and and just trying to balance it too, it's kind of good, good fun as well. You'd be a little bit worried there that you make a bags of everything of <laughs> the whole lot at some stage, but I kind of held it together just about so far, which is is good. Thankfully, indeed it is. And Pinton, how long do you think it'll be before you get back in the boat? Do you want a long break? Um, well, we actually have a race coming up <laughs> next week or the week <laughs> after in the UK Henley Royal Regatta. We're going to yeah, give yeah. that a crack. So. Uh, I guess it won't be too long till we're back around. There'll, there'll be no break at all. Um, your sister was on the programme earlier, Fintan. She said you weren't a sporty kid. Yeah, that's probably fair to say. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, what, what, uh, what, what age were you when you began rowing? Um, I was, I think I was around 15. That's late. Yeah, yeah. It was more so just, you know, I don't think I found any sport that I enjoyed or was really good at until rowing came along, so... Then when I found that, I think, yeah, I just ran with it. And well, it won't get better than a yeah. medal you have in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. Listen, we're really thrilled. We're grateful to you for coming in and saying hello to us. It means a lot. You're going to be on television at nine o'clock for people who want to switch over because, as I say, you've brought great joy to us all. So, Paul Finton, congratulations to you, to your club, to your families and your fantastic coach. Thanks a million for joining us here in Morning Ireland. Thanks Thank for having you. us, Des. Appreciate it. It is a big day for restaurants, cafes and pubs. It marks the start of indoor dining and drinking again for the first time this year and for many others, the first time since March 2020. Let's go live to our reporter Gail Conway, who's in Dublin city centre, checking on how things are going. Gail. Good morning, Audrey. Yeah, I'm here in the city centre at St. Stephen's Green at Casey Peaches. Now, traffic's really light and there are very few people walking around very quiet in the city centre um, with people still working from home and others on holidays. Um, there's very little footfall. People are still making the most of the good weather on staycations, so they're not actually coming into the city centre. There are also very few tourists around. And I've been here in Casey Peaches since 8 o'clock, and a few people have been coming and going for takeaway drinks mainly, but no one has sat inside yet. Now, many owners who only received the government guidelines over the weekend are not opening for indoor dining today. The Restaurants Association of Ireland expects a quarter of businesses won't open straight away because they're unwilling to operate under the new guidelines. Catherine Kyo is co-owner of Kyo's Cafe on Trinity Street in Dublin. Now she reached the decision not to open just yesterday evening. We're a small business. Uh, you have to come to the counter. Uh, we don't have contactless card machines. And we just feel, you know, it's going to upset our, our daily routine at the moment. We need a bit of more time. I don't think government gave us enough time to kind of sort this out. They didn't give us a proper detail as to what has to be done. I'm hoping we can do it in two weeks when we really study what we need to do and sort things out properly and not look like idiots in the morning. I would rather study it, get it right and, you know, have, have things working properly. And that was Catherine Kyo, co-owner of Kyo's Cafe on Trinity Street. Now, I'm joined here by Stephen Riley. He's the operations director of Casey Peaches here on St. Stephen's Green. Stephen, how do you feel about opening for indoor dining today? You have some outdoor seating and you've been doing takeaway, but from today, people can actually sit inside. Yeah, I suppose we have mixed uh, views on how to react to the government news that we could reopen. Um, 
I think, as you said there this morning, there's very few people around, and I think there's going to be a hesitancy by the customers to come back indoor. I think people are still afraid at this point. Sure. Um, so there were two key updates to the guidelines last night. Designated tables have been removed, so that means you don't have to keep a record of exactly what table a booking sat at. And contact tracing is also now only required for the lead person at a table for, or for a person sitting solo. Will this make things easier for you or how do you feel about them? Yeah, I think both are welcomed. Yeah, we're definitely delighted that we, could, we only have to record one person's name. I think the government's Q, uh, app uh, allowing us to scan the QR code will definitely help. Um, and speed up the process. However, we still have to have somebody manning the doors and, um, um, and gathering that information when they come in. Sure. And what about the lack of footfall in the city centre? Is there anything you want the government to do about this to get people back into the city? Yeah, it's a big concern of ours. I mean, as you mentioned earlier on, there's very few people around. I think there's three key things that we need in our business in, in the city centre are five locations we have, and that's tourists, office worker and um, students. And they're all missing at the minute and have been for a long period of time. So we'd welcome the government um, bringing them back in. Thank you very much. That was Stephen Riley, Operations Director of KC Peaches on St. Stephen's Green. We heard there on what it says in the papers, the way has now been cleared for young people aged between 12 and 15 to receive the COVID vaccine. This follows a recommendation from the National Immunisation Advisory Committee. The government hopes that a significant number of young people will have received at least one dose before schools reopen. Given, however, that COVID represents a relatively small risk to children, it's unclear what the uptake will be. Our reporter Ailey Sheehy has been speaking to people in Abbey Field in County Limerick. I'm a little unsure really about it, but I feel for us to move forward for the future, we kind of have to go with the programme and hopefully it'll return to normal life. I have two daughters, 14 and 15. They kind of seem excited. It's been opening up to the younger age group, so I feel that they will be looking forward to getting the vaccine. I'm 14. Are you going to take up the vaccine when it's offered to the age cohort of 12 to 15 year olds? Yeah. So I could like travel and go to matches without like being afraid of getting COVID. A uh, small bit scared because like it's a needle and all that, but it'd be grand like. I think it'll make me feel more protected. See my friends not being like worried about giving it to each other and spreading it. How do you feel about returning to school in September when you'll be fully vaccinated? I think I feel better about it. You know, I wouldn't be as nervous with everyone there in the same classroom. My son Fionn, he's 14 and I have another son who's 12. My husband and I both have had the vaccine, but I've concerns about giving it to my two sons. I feel that they're young. Fionn has already had two vaccines this year, the HPV and the meningitis. So another vaccine again this year, I just think it's a lot for his body. Do you think you'll make a final decision or do you think you leave it up to Fionn or what do you think you'll do? Well, I've asked Fionn how he feels about it and he doesn't like needles, but I don't think he minds too much about getting the vaccine itself. My husband wants my two boys to get it. It's really up to my mom what she wants to do. I would rather get it and I'd be more safe towards the COVID and I could go more places and probably get in planes and go on holidays with the vaccine. Do you feel you have enough information at hand to make an informed decision? No, I don't. I think that there's been very little information, just that it's been approved. It's something I most definitely be mentioned to my own GP and ask her for her opinion on it. But I do think that we need to get some more information on it. So do you have any children from the age of 12 upwards? I have a 15-year-old son. And have you thought about your son taking up the vaccine or what are your views on that? Well, I've thought about it and it's kind of a tricky one. You want them to be safe, not sure if it is safe. But on the other hand, I feel like we kind of all have to be vaccinated to go forward and kind of get rid of this virus. And do you think your son will take the vaccine or have you spoken to him about it? Oh yeah, he's quite happy to take it because he just wants to be out with his friends and move around more freely. And will you let the decision then be up to your son or are you going to give it some further thought before you make a final decision? Well, we'll think about it some more and obviously we'll have a chat with him. But I think at the end of the day, going back to school, I think it's probably safer if he does have it. And with your son returning to school in September, the fact that some children in his class might not be vaccinated, what are your views on that? Well, I feel like if he is vaccinated, I presume he's safer. And I mean, everybody has their own opinion. If they don't want to get it done, then that's their choice. I have a granddaughter. She's 12. Personally, as her grandparent, 
I'm totally against it. I feel children at that age, immune system should be able to help fight these viruses and things. I would worry about what it would do to them in the future. So I really think at that age, they shouldn't be vaccinated. And do you think with the return to school in September that it might help suppress the virus and maybe prevent other variants from taking hold and even slow down the spread of the Delta variant that we currently have? Delta variant, of course, is is a worry. I'm sure that it would be a help for all the children at that age. We don't really know enough, even though I'm fully vaccinated myself and very glad to get it. And there's a comfort of having it. But small children, I'm just... A doubt about. Some views there from Abbey Field in County Limerick that were gathered by our reporter Ailey Sheehy. Joining us now is the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Good morning. Good morning, Rachel. Before we talk about the qualms some may have about this move, can we talk about the logistics? When are vaccinations of this group likely to start and where are they likely to take place? Can I just start, Rachel, if I may, by congratulating the women's rowing team? to Afric, Emer, Fiona and Emily. Just, I just wanted to add my uh, admiration for everything they've done. They've made their, their country incredibly proud. Um, for the 12 to 15-year-olds, it, it's really good news. We've been looking for a view from NIAC for, uh, for some time on this. They've given us a huge amount of consideration. And then they gave us their view uh, on, on Monday. So we're now planning the logistics with the HSE. What we know is there's about 269,000 people in this cohort, age 12 to 15 in the country. We'll be doing most of this through the vaccine centres. So we'll have an update. The online portal will be open for parents, just as it is now, for everyone from 16 and up. And then parents will be able to bring their children to the vaccine centre. I think there will likely also be a role for GPs. So the, the biggest priority for me has been the 12 to 15-year-olds with underlying conditions. Um, we're obviously doing the planning now and we're pouring over the NIAC advice, but I, I think it's likely there will be a role for GPs, particularly where parents uh, have a child with an underlying condition. They have a relationship with the GP. They'd like to talk to their GP. Parents will have some very reasonable questions they'll want to, they'll want to discuss, and they might want the GP to administer the vaccine as well. Children will need permission from their parents, obviously. Will they also have to be accompanied to vaccine centres by a parent? All of this hasn't been finalised, but I I think it is highly likely, yes. I I, I wouldn't see a situation where 12 to 15-year-olds would be going in on their own. Um, It does require parental consent. And I think your Vox Pops were really interesting because the 12 to 15-year-olds they obviously have their own view. And um, as a lot of them want to get vaccinated, it sounds like a lot of them very understandably don't particularly like needles. Um, but it was very interesting to hear them say they, they, they do want to get protected. Ultimately, uh, the consent and the permission comes from the parents. And what we've got to do, and it was very interesting listening to, your, to the last box spot there from, from the grandmother, parents and indeed grandparents, they will always do what's right for their child. And a, lo- a lot of parents now, I think, are really welcoming of this news and they're looking forward to getting their children vaccinated. And there are parents who will have very reasonable questions. And what we've got to do now in the coming days and coming weeks is make sure that expert information is available and that you know there are experts on shows like yours who can really address the questions very reasonable questions parents will have. Given though the extremely low risk to children and a major study in Britain found that a child has a tiny tiny chance of being admitted to ICU the question is this is this move really necessary? I believe it is and there, there are several advantages which NIAC have laid out. One is protection against serious illness. And as you say, thank goodness, because of their age, uh, these children are, have a huge level of protection. But, it, but it's not full protection. One of the other issues that's been pointed out is long COVID. Because COVID is so new, obviously, we're still learning about this. And, and the scientific and medical communities all around the world are still studying this. But there are higher rates where uh, children and indeed adults have less severity, but the symptoms can last for a lot longer. And then another point that NIAC uh, made was that not only does this protect the children themselves, but it also protects their families and those around them. So there was a particular emphasis in the NIAC advice on, uh, en- on, on vaccinating children who have underlying conditions and vaccinating children who live with 
or are in, you know, social or family circles with adults who have mm. underlying conditions And, and well. listeners may know that that's what's being done in the UK, that children who have underlying conditions themselves or who live in a household where there are issues, that those are the only children being vaccinated. So I suppose, again, we go back to the question, who really benefits here from this decision to vaccinate all children, the young people themselves or the wider community? Both. And we're very aware of what the UK has done. We've been taking a look as well at what other countries are doing in terms of already offering, planning to offer or having authorised use for children as young as 12. And it includes countries like France, Austria, Hungary, uh, Italy, Spain, Israel, Norway, Japan, Belgium, Canada and now Ireland. So there's a lot of a lot of countries believe that this is the right thing to do in the first instance for this age group themselves. And secondarily, as is exactly the case for adults, for the wider community as well. Are vaccines likely to be offered at any stage to those aged under 12? We don't know that. So for that to happen, there'd have to be um, authorisation from the European Medicines Agency. uh, And then NIAC obviously would have to look at it and government would, would, would have to make a decision based on that advice. But certainly the advice I have is that that is not something that would be on the card, certainly in this calendar year. Do you expect that the take-up among this group, the 12 to 15-year-olds, will be lower than among older age groups? You know, it's hard to say. One of the things that has really distinguished Ireland's vaccine programme is the high take-up rates. Right across the age groups, we have either the highest or some of the highest take-up rates anywhere in Europe and and indeed around the world. And I was in several vaccine centres yesterday and it was wonderful to see Uh, younger people, 18 and up, in there, really excited, queuing up, waiting to get their vaccine and then go on and get on with their lives. When we opened up the portal, uh, I believe it was yesterday, the 16 to 17-year-olds, we had a very, very strong uptake. I think there was well in excess of 10,000 in the first 90 minutes or or, or two hours. And we heard from your Vox Pop there, I think a very, very positive response from the children themselves and from their parents. So, So I think we will see a high take-up. I think people uh, trust the vaccine programme, they trust the experts and, and, and the advice that government is getting. And just to be clear about this, there's no suggestion, is there, that children won't be allowed to attend school if they haven't been vaccinated? Absolutely not. No, not on the cards and won't be on the cards. There is another issue here and it's this. Is it ethical to vaccinate those who are unlikely to suffer serious COVID illness when in large parts of the world we know that older people have yet to be vaccinated? I, I think what we have to do is we have to do both. So, so I think it is absolutely ethical and right that, that we uh, protect our own children and that we protect our own community, but that's not enough. So I brought a memo to government yesterday that pointed out that in some very low-income countries, uh, only 1.1% of the adult population has received even one dose. I want Ireland to play a leading role and indeed the EU and and Minister Coveney and I have been working together on exactly this. But we're going to vaccinate 12 to 15 year olds first. Well, at the same time as we're now looking at our contributions to COVAX and to Gavi, which is the which is the the, the, the global program for for getting these vaccines uh, around the world. So, for example, we'll very shortly have surplus AstraZeneca available. So we're we're, we're going to be making decisions shortly about how uh, we contribute to that. And remember, we we pre-purchased about twice as many doses of vaccine as are required to vaccinate the entire population. So we are going to have a considerable amount of excess vaccines and we are going to play a very strong role internationally in making sure that there is a globally just vaccination programme. All right. On a related matter, there are plans for walk-in vaccination centres. We heard a little about this yesterday. How widespread will those centres be? This is really exciting. So first of all, we're doing walk-in vaccination centres over the August bank holiday. So from the 31st of July to the 2nd of August. Anyone from the age of 16 or over uh, can go in. The HSC will provide the details uh, later, later this week. You don't have to have registered online. Uh, if you have registered online for a vaccine centre, you can simply go to one of the walk-ins and bring your photo ID. If you haven't registered online, again, you can just turn up and we'll register you at the vaccine centre. For that, you need to bring PPS Uh, phone number, email and photo ID and it's the two mRNA vaccines that are going to be offered and so if you come in for your first dose then by text you'll be scheduled for your second dose. And and just to be clear about this, at the moment the plan is for these walk-in centres to be in a relatively small number of places. 
Well, well, that's right. Yeah. So what we're looking to do is we've seen a, we've seen a really strong response uh, from younger age cohorts. And what we want to do now is just make it as easy as possible for people to turn up and get themselves vaccinated. It's also reported that booster injections are to be offered to older and to more vulnerable people. This to start happening in the autumn. Can you confirm that? Yeah, this is, I think, further positive good news we got from NIAC on Monday as well. So they've identified four cohorts to begin with. And their advice is that we would start the booster campaign at the same time as uh, the winter flu vaccination program. So essentially, you could, you could go for both vaccines at the same time. We're working through with the task force and the HSE exactly how that might work. The first four priority groups that NIAC have identified are residents in long-term residential care, frontline healthcare workers, people aged 80 and over and those who are immunocompromised. And is this then likely to start happening in September? Yeah, the flu vaccine programme would typically start about the the last week in September and then run through October. The advice from NIAC, which uh, we we will be taking, is that we will do that. We'll we'll run the booster campaign in parallel with the flu vaccine programme. Just one other question on vaccines, given that you mentioned that the country is likely to have more than it needs. Um, Did we ever get the vaccines that you were promising to buy from Romania? There's good constructive ongoing talk both with Romania and Pfizer on that at the moment. So we're, we, are, we are working on that uh, and it's a very positive and constructive. But they, they haven't arrived yet because it's quite they a while now since, they, since this was announced. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. There's been a lot of work going on in the background and uh, we're, we're still working on it. One other thing in relation to all of this, the Thonish that people will know said at the start of the week that he wants more detailed figures on hospitalisation so that there's a distinction between those who were admitted because they have COVID and those who happen to test positive but are actually in hospital for something else. Do you agree with him? I agree and I would add to that as well. The other thing that we want is we want to know for those who are in hospital, both in, in wards and in ICU, how many of them are unvaccinated Uh, How many have had one dose, two doses, and then critically two doses plus 14 days? Uh, Dr. Ronan Glynn, the deputy CMO, did a really useful piece of work recently where they got this information for ICU and the results were really important. What it showed was, I believe it was 124 people in ICU and only one of those had had both doses plus 14 days. Mm. Given that we're not talking about huge numbers of people here, should you not have that information already? I, I wish we did, uh, and the department is working with the HSE right now to get it. And when, when is that likely? When are you likely to receive it, do you think? And will the rest of us get to see it as well? Everyone will definitely get to see it, yes. We'll, we'll publish it as soon as, we, as soon as we have it. Stephen Donnelly, Minister for Health, thank you for joining us this morning. We're going to the Vatican where a trial of 10 people over an embezzlement scandal that allegedly saw charity funds used in a ruinous London property venture starts today. Among them, Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the most senior former official in the Vatican to stand trial for financial crimes. It's the first time a cardinal has been indicted by Vatican criminal prosecutors. His immunity was lifted by Pope Francis. Rome-based reporter Paddy Agnew is with us. Morning, Paddy. Tell us more about Angelo Becciu and what he's accused of. Yeah, good morning, Gavin. Good morning to our listeners. Uh, Becky is accused of some very serious crimes. Let me just present he is a serious figure in himself. He was the sostituto, which is a sort of a Vatican uh, chief of staff under both uh, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis. Uh, and he is accused of being part of a, a group of people who basically got their hands on uh, Vatican money. Uh, and we're talking about millions of euros here. And at, uh, at the end of a two-year investigation, uh, the uh, Vatican investigators have concluded that some very unlikely, uh, improbable and impresentable uh, figures, as they call them, uh, created a, an absolutely rotten and predatory system. Uh, and they used uh, Vatican funds. And most uh, alarmingly is that they seem to have got their hands on those funds which are at the disposition of the Pope himself. In other words, uh, they got their hands on what we know as Peter's Pence, the uh, June 29th uh, offering from the Catholic faithful. And what are they and, uh, do, doing with the money, Paddy? Sorry. No, yeah, it, he, basically a series of ill-advised investments, the most spectacular of which was uh, the purchase of 
uh, for 350 million euro of a, a warehouse in central London, the Mayfair, that was formerly owned by Harrods, uh, on which they lost money, uh, and on which uh, they, they then had to engage uh, financial experts to, uh, as, as it lost money, they, they reshaped it, and they restructured the company, uh, but uh, to g gain uh, full control of the uh, the shareholders in this company, they had to pay out a further 17, 15 million uh, to some of these people who were advising them. What we're talking about here is a lot of uh, uh, people in, uh, or sorry, a small number of people in the higher uh, echelons of the Secretary, Secretary of State who simply look like they've been uh, hooded and duped and uh, fooled by uh, financial experts who saw a great chance to. Um, uh, fleece them basically. Why is this trial unique? Well, it's unique because the first time ever that a, a cardinal uh, goes on trial. This trial takes place, Gavin, in the uh, Vatican City State uh, Court, and it's uh, until now cardinals could only be judged by their peer group. In other words, they were judged uh, in a court of cassation, which was headed by a cardinal. Uh, that's not the case. Pope uh, Francis himself, as recently as April of this year, changed that legislation so that uh, a cardinal facing these uh, grave financial crimes can be charged, uh, can be tried in this particular court. Uh, and that in itself relates back to the fact that, as I'm sure many uh, people will remember out there, that when he was elected in 2013, one of the uh, uh, major uh, prerogatives of his election was to uh, sort out uh, the chaos, in, to a certain extent, chaos in the Curia, but above all, on uh, problems of Vatican finances. Paddy, thank you. That's Rome-based reporter Paddy Agnew. Two of the trusts operating hospitals in Northern Ireland appealed to their staff over the weekend to come in to work as their hospitals were operating under extreme pressure. There were more than 1,200 new COVID cases in the North yesterday, with another two deaths linked to the virus, while Health Minister Robin Swan has urged people to take up the offer of a vaccine. Seanine Graham, the Irish News' health correspondent, is on the line. Good morning, Seanine. Good morning. So the Belfast Trust and Southeastern Trust coming under significant pressure. What has been happening? Well, there has been a sudden spike in admissions to um, hospitals. And the big problem is that A&E has been swamped with COVID-related uh, admissions uh, in recent days. And that has impacted severely on beds. So uh, just over a month ago, our inpatients were hovering at around 14. Um, by last Friday, we had more than 160 people in the hospital. And the big problem is that our intensive care care units have seen a major increase in COVID admissions. Um, we had uh, 16 by Friday and eight of them, eight of those patients were critically ill on ventilators. So um, the, the, the system is already struggling to cope on Friday as well. Such were the pressures that orthopaedic procedures, um, such as hip and knee replacements, they actually had to be postponed. So um, we've been talking to so many consultants and they said that what they're now seeing um, is a rise in younger people um, coming to their A&E doors and um, some of them haven't been vaccinated. And um, there's also an issue with the workforce. Uh, last night, as you say, the, the appeal went out um, for off-duty nurses to come in, uh, which, which which they responded to. But our front page today in the Irish News, for example, we have a leaked memo from Friday, which reveals that there has been a 150% rise in COVID-related absences among staff in the Belfast Trust, which is our biggest trust. And most of the staff obviously have been doubly uh, vaccinated. They're fully protected. But the problem is our infection rates are soaring in the north at the moment. So many of these staff are being pinged and they have to uh, self isolate for up to 10 days. So this is uh, all impacting um, on a very, very fragile system. Pre-COVID, uh, the North had the, the worst waiting list in the entire NHS and, and, and uh, hemorrhaging staff, particularly among nurses, which, as we know, just before the pandemic, um, the, 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 there was an unprecedented nursing strike here because of uh, uh, unsafe staffing, as, as one union put it. 
And you mentioned there's sort of the issues around vaccination. Um, there are concerns about the slow uptake among under 30s. Is that right? That's right. So um, uh, last Friday, um, we actually reported uh, for the first time. We, I've been asking the Department of Health repeatedly for these figures, but we w w we discovered that uh, two thirds of hospitalised cases uh, for the week ending uh, July seventeenth in the North Hospitals were actually uh, unvaccinated. And um, we also know that there has been anecdotally uh, younger people who uh, going to hospital who haven't been vaccinated. But uh, the stats, the official stats now tell us that um, as of yesterday, 57% um, uh, of uh, the under 30s, those 18 to 29 year olds, uh, only 57% only have um, been vaccinated. Um, so more than 40% have yet to receive um, their jabs. And it just seems to have stalled for that age group um, overall. I mean, for we have 83% of the entire adult population here um, have, have uh, received their, their first jab. And we reached a milestone yesterday um, with 70% of our population now fully vaccinated but for some reason the um, yes it has stalled and uh, we have there's been uh, saturation coverage really of, in terms of appeals to uh, to young people to come forward we've had pop-up clinics and everything from you know GA, GAA matches mm. um, to outside university campuses but um, the uh, it, 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 it has stalled so and our, our vaccination program for the mass population and our centres is actually being stood down at the end of the month for first doses so there is this as they call this final push the Department of Health uh, uh, repeated appeals for young people to come forward given what we're seeing in our hospitals. Okay, Seanine Graham, Irish News Health Correspondent, thank you for talking to us this morning. Now, locked up, locked in, locked out, a new report has been published highlighting the experience of older people during the pandemic. Telling it like it is outlines the loneliness and isolation experienced by some, the cocooning which went on too long, the loss of life and bereavements which disproportionately affected elderly people and their loss of identity. In a moment, we'll be speaking to the CEO of one of the seven organisations involved in the report about its findings. But first, our reporter Killian Sherlock has been speaking to two older people, Eugene Phillips and Angela Edgehill, about their experiences of the early stages of the pandemic. It was frightening for the first six months. That word cocooning, I'd say, if you said it now to an older person, it'd probably run. I, I'm an active person and I found it absolutely terrible. It was frustrating just sitting inside and looking out the window. But then again, like, you know, there's the likes of Zoom and things like that. It's amazing. A lot of a lot of older people now have started to use things like that. I hope people have learned and seen what, what has happened now. And maybe the government could help older people to learn these technologies that if ever something like this was to happen again, at least they can keep in contact with people. The belief that somehow the deaths were, oh, they were all over 80 as if older people's deaths didn't matter. There was a dismissiveness about this that kind of scared me a bit. It was a difficult time, and three of my very close friends were bereaved um, during COVID. That was very hard not to be able to see them. And then my husband got ill and um, was diagnosed with cancer and had to go to hospital, have an operation. I couldn't go near him for 11 days. And that was very hard on both of us because I felt he was very isolated, even though he was brilliantly looked after. But it was very hard being alone. That was Angela Edgehill and before her, Eugene Phillips, speaking to our reporter Killian Sherlock last night. Let's talk now to Sue Shaw, who is CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament and one of the organisations which was involved in putting this report together. Sue, good morning. Good morning. And this report says older people felt cancelled, stripped of their identity, that their lives became a series of instructions during the early part of the pandemic. What can we learn from their experience and from what they have been telling you? I think the report highlights very strongly the sense of uh, the lack of being listened to, having or being engaged with by the people who are making the decisions. So I think going forward, we need to hear that very strongly and ensure that older people's skill, experience and knowledge informs policy 
that will affect everyday life for older people. Um, I think a recognition of older people as contributors to society rather than as people who have uh, limited limited skills or things to offer um, needs to be really heard. Um, I think you heard um, Eugene refer to how frightening and frustrating it was to be cocooned. And that message is echoed consistently across all of the organisations. Yes, and, um, and the, 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 it, there were some positive uh, effects too outlined there by, by Eugene around the use of technology and the connectivity that that offered people. But the negative effects vastly outweighed any of the positives. I think, yes, um, I think older people's ability to cope was highlighted very strongly. I mean, if you're living alone and you've been cocooned and you can go no further than 2K, then your physical, mental, uh, social needs, as well as health needs, as outlined by Angela, can get moved aside and not a priority. Um, And I think in the anxiety and the very difficult circumstances all of the other determinants of what matter to older people's health and quality of life were very much pushed to the side. I mean, six in ten older people enjoy regular social and leisure activities. They disappeared off the horizon. We all know how important that is for our mental health and well-being. So we would say definitely that hearing that experience and moving forward and saying, yes, we did learn, we did adapt, and how can we support that skill around IT? How can we invest more strongly in it? But equally, I think IT in itself can be a one-on-one experience as opposed to group, so not to see it as the panacea, but certainly a support to address increasing those skills okay. and, you mentioned, and the cost you, of those skills. You mentioned through that word, the, the C word, as you call it in the report, cocooning, which became a, a hated term, really, uh, among many elderly people. But but yet, a, a cocooning and a lot of the, the measures which were taken during the early part of the pandemic, they were designed to protect the elderly from harm. Is there an acknowledgement that these things were done for the right reasons, even if they did become something that became unbearable for a lot of people? Well, there's no doubt about it that while... Uh, the decisions were made in very difficult and uncertain circumstances. And there is a full appreciation for the work and dedication shown by all hospital staff, as outlined there by Angela, that nonetheless, the, the concept of elderly from 65 to 100 as one homogenous group that needed to be cocooned, it was 70 actually, but from 70 to 100 mm. to be cocooned, totally disrespected the reality of the levels of uh, ability and health across that large group. No other group would be grouped in such a a long uh, period. So I think definitely while there is an acceptance, yes, decisions were made at the time that were meant well. Now now the time is to realise we didn't get it totally right it had long-term effects on people's health, mental health, well-being, that we now need to go back, should, and learn from that experience okay. and have older people inform the next steps. All right, so lessons to be learned. Sue Shaw, CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament, thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland. A man who spent 10 hours in the water near a beach in County Louth after his inflatable dinghy capsized was rescued late last night by emergency services. The man was in his late 40s, had gone out on the water at Whitestown Beach, Dundalk earlier in the day. Gerard O'Flynn is Coast Guard's Head of Operations and we can talk to him now. What happened, Gerard? Good morning, Gavin. Uh, well, fortunately, it's a story with a happy ending, but it appears that this man um, went to sea <clears throat> sometime around midday yesterday or, uh, or shortly after. He's understood to have left home earlier, believed to be from Newry. And um, the man uh, appears to have gone to sea on these dreaded inflatable toys or an inflatable boat. He got separated from his boat. So last night, or his vessel, uh, last night at about quarter to ten, local Gardaí contacted the Marine Rescue Coordination Centre in Dublin who mounted a full-range uh, search-and-rescue operation. And given that it's close to uh, Carlingford Lock, there was close co- collaboration with Belfast Coast Guard. Uh, the local Coast Guard unit, Green Ore unit, were tasked the Dublin-based Coast Guard helicopter, Kilkee lifeboat, 
assistance was also provided by a local kayaker and the pilot boat, the Morn Mist. So um, within an hour or so, um, the um, Coast Guard unit heard shouting from the water. The man was located, initially recovered by the kayaker, transferred to the lifeboat and subsequently transferred to the um, Coast Guard helicopter uh, from which he was transferred to um, a hospital in Dublin. Uh, obviously, he was pretty stressed after his ordeal, but he's believed to be stable and in uh, uh, good spirits. So, how, how long was he waiting to be, or how long was he at sea on his own? It would appear that he must have been out there for at least 11 hours now. Oh, how long he was separated from his uh, little craft, we're not quite sure, but he was in the water for quite a while. Now, to his credit, he was wearing a flotation device, and obviously that contributed to his survival, and that's important, it's important to record that. Yes, t- t- tell us about what he, wh- what he was wearing that helped keep him afloat. I'm not 100% sure. The report we had is he was wearing a flotation device, uh, a buoyancy aid, which is good, uh, a form of, um, uh, it's um, not, the, the, as opposed to being an inflatable device, it's just uh, basically floats attached to your body, so a personal flotation device, so that was important. The other factor in his favour, of course, was that uh, sea temperatures would be uh, close to their peak at this stage of the year, so that was important. But it was a narrow escape, and um, you know I'm reluctant to condone or condemn any activity. But uh, Minister Nocton, uh, Minister of State in the Power for Transport, uh, is, is issued a statement again today, appealing to the public never to use inflatable devices on any open water, be it rivers, or lakes, or certainly at sea. And as many people know, the tides at the approaches to Carlingford Lock, Dundalk Bay, Dundalk Bay are quite strong. But the man, it's a happy ending. The man, the yes. man did survive, and that's the, that's the good news. When you said dreaded inflatable, do, do you know what it was he was using? A dinghy of some sort, is that right? We understand that it was a small little inflatable dinghy of some description. I don't have any pictures of it, but it, it now appears that that vessel was, um, was seen drifting earlier in the day, but uh, it didn't... Um, it, uh, you know, whether that was the one or not, we're not quite sure. But uh, all the evidence is that he was using some sort of an inflatable toy, and we are really appealing to everybody: please do not bring these things near anywhere near waterways. Certainly, sea, lakes, rivers—they're not suitable. They're back garden toys, and that's that's as far as they should go. Joe Flynn, Coast Guard Head of Operations. Thank you very much for speaking to us. A burst water main has left around 50,000 people without water in County Kerry. Let's talk to our southern editor, Pascal Sheehy. Pascal, what happened? Well, I can tell you that uh, around five o'clock yesterday evening, uh, a 700 millimetre uh, mains water pipe running from the water treatment plant at Loch Gatan uh, near Muckras in Killarney to the reservoir at Shehari burst uh, and that knocked out supplies. In fact, I think supplies were cut then uh, to substantial parts of Kerry, including uh, the towns of Trilly and Killarney and businesses there. Uh, now, Irish Water and engineers from Irish Water and Kerry County Council were on site almost immediately. It is, I think, the second burst water main in the county in the same area in around 48 hours. Uh, Repairs got underway relatively quickly and they were completed uh, at around 2 o'clock this morning. That's good news, uh, but not so good news is the fact that it's going to take some time now to bring the service back. Uh, They're going to do that slowly and gradually so as not to put pressure uh, on other parts of the pipeline. Uh, And so there will be disruption uh, excuse me to services uh, for 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 much of the day today, uh, but uh, but but services will resume to normal far quicker than had originally been anticipated. And of course, critical industry and other services affected, like hospitals, the vaccination centres, nursing homes, industry, and so on. Well, I suppose at this time of the year, it's July and it's peak, <clears throat> excuse me, it's peak tourist time. Uh, and so, for instance, I think the population of Killarney would generally double 
um, at this time of the year. Uh, so it's quite possible that far more than 55,000 people who, who, who normally reside in Kerry uh, are being affected by this. Hospitals, nursing homes, there are two vaccination centres in the um, areas affected by disruption, one at the Sports Academy in Tralee and the other at Killarney Sports and Leisure Centre. All of these facilities are being uh, prioritised uh, for water supplies and because some people have been without water for more than 24 hours now, water tankers will be deployed uh, in areas uh, from this morning. And a list of those areas, I would imagine, will be on uh, Kerry County Council's social media uh, and website. OK, Pascal, thank you so much indeed. Pascal Sheehy, our Southern Editor. So after a year's wait... Much debate. Week one of the Tokyo Olympics is almost done. A huge achievement for all that made it. Three medals so far for Ireland, and we're only halfway there. It's Ireland from Germany, and history is made of the water in Tokyo as Vincent McCarthy and Paul O'Donovan win gold. Gold for Ireland. You're like you're very happy winning, obviously, but the end of the day, then you kind of forget about it and get on with life. And there she is. Yeah, the big smile on her face, Mona McSharry. They weren't all PDs, but. I was just happy to race, and I don't think I've seen myself smile that much walking out to a race in a long time. Jack, commiserations, it's not what you dreamed of. It's tough to take, and it will be. You know, some people have come here to participate in the Olympics. I came here to win it, and I could have just outperformed like that. It wasn't my day. He's done it! He's done it! He's beaten the world champion! Kurt Walker is through! What were the tactics, Kurt? Just be fast, head first and get out last. That's it. Australia win it, Netherlands second, and Ireland are home for third and a bronze. We knew we had a good chance going into it, definitely. We just didn't give up. The first Irish women to win Olympic rowing medals. I'm with Fergal O'Callaghan, the Irish rowing team manager. Fergal, it's a real case of the highs and lows today. We had uh, the two boys, of course, uh, winning gold in that incredible performance and then uh, a devastating blow for Sunita. It's just terrible. I have tears of joy for the boys and tears of sadness for Sunita. Aidan, congratulations. You now have joined the list of Ireland's boxing Olympic medalists. I don't even know what to say to that. It's crazy. There's just so much support that I'm just so grateful. Can't believe it. Four hundred metres hurdles. Heat three. Thomas Barr in lane seven for Ireland. And again, Thomas Barr looking in good position here. He's always got something for the last few hurdles. Barr gets second place as expected. Gold medalists and Olympic champions, Ireland. Vincent McCarthy and Paul O'Donovan, Olympic champions. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.